Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Good morning, church. It's good to be back with you today. I want to thank Ray and Marlene. Uh, I get the privilege of working with Marlene every, every weekday and seeing her at least on video and uh, uh, just a joy to hear from them. I can't believe that they did that in one take. Marlene told me that. Jennifer's and mine, um, well, it was more than one take. To coin a phrase from our two-and-a-half-year-old uh, granddaughter, Clementine, it was a total mess, a total mess. I tripped over the tripod when I was trying to sit down quickly after turning on the, the phone, which I'd taped to our uh, camera tripod, and all we could do then was sit and watch the whole thing fall over and crash on the floor. Um, I suspect that there are some hilarious outtakes out there uh, from all of us uh, doing these things at home. Ray, if it helps, I still don't know what Google Hangout is. Hangout used to mean actually going out when I was growing up. But what a great thing to be able to do devotions with your grandson via video. That's amazing. And Marlene, I hope we've all learned to live a better rhythm of being. Thank you both for sharing, for being a blessing to our church and encouraging all of us this morning. I'd like to start out by asking you a question. Have you ever wondered what's the first thing that comes to people's minds when they hear your name? Not many names trigger the concept of love for me. People say a name and I think of other adjectives. I don't think of love. Shall we try that out for a little bit right where you're at? See if the names that I give you here make you think of the concept of love. Bill Gates. No, you probably went to money, not love. Justin Trudeau. Vladimir Putin. Probably not love. Wayne Gretzky. Zach Kolaris. Not so much. Not very many names, if you think about it, uh, actually take you to a place of thinking their name is synonymous with love. Brace yourselves this morning. Mine's probably not. Yours probably isn't either. That might not keep many of us awake at night, except for this one thing, that in God's economy, the single highest value by a huge factor is love. 1 Corinthians 14.1, which many think should have been tagged on to the end of 1 Corinthians 13, and I would tend to agree, says, let your love be your highest, let love be your highest goal. The Bible says it's the primary measuring rod by which my life and yours will be judged. That being the case then, doesn't it make sense that today we do everything we can to get love right? To learn to love better, more? How you answer this question reveals your dominant life principle. Everybody's got one whether you know it or not. A good read on where society's life principles are at is to look at gift cards and their sayings. One I picked up a while back said this, if I had an ice cream cone, I'd give you half. If I had six candies, you'd get three. If I had two apples, one would be yours. If I won the lottery, I'd send you a postcard from Tahiti. Loving words, if ever I've heard them. See, your dominant life principle is what you refer to unconsciously every day when you have choices and decisions to make. For instance, if my dominant life principle is fun, 
then when I get two invitations to go actually go out, I'm going to choose the one that I'll have more fun in. If your dominant life principle is beyond that, is something more in the lines of uh, security, for instance, then I'm always going to make choices that bring a measure of security, of safety. I will avoid risk. If my dominant value in life is comfort, then when I make choices, I'm going to choose the things that are easy for me. Take the least amount of effort. If my dominant life principle is to be recognized, well, then I choose things where people will see me and notice me. Jesus asked, was asked a values question like this once. He was asked, frankly, the ultimate values question. We've talked about it a number of times already in this series. Some teachers of the law of the Old Testament came to him and said, Jesus, there's lots of commands out there. God has given us lots of commands. You've got the big 10, and then there's lots of others. What's the most important one? It's a values question. Jesus, without hesitation, says, the most important command is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second command is this. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. There are no commands more important than these. Love God, love people. Christian author and therapist Dr. Dan Allender asked his daughter one day this very probing question. What she thought was the most important lesson he had wanted her to learn about life. She thought a few moments and then she replied, to work hard, do your best, and never lie. Not bad answers, mind you, but what Dan noticed immediately was that love was conspicuously absent from her list, and he set out to change that. His question prompted me to wonder how my children and grandchildren would answer a similar question. How would yours? What if they would leave love off their list? 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 talks about the supremacy of love, but it's also very sobering. It's on your screen, but let me paraphrase it for you in my own words. If we possess the talent to draw crowds and mesmerize multitudes of people for all the right reasons, if we are scary smart, if we are sought by wisdom seekers from all over the world for our sheer brilliance, if we're committed to all the right causes and wrote the final word on what self-sacrifice is in order to advance good causes, but failed to live and walk and talk and work and worship with a loving heart, chalk up yet another life that missed the mark. Put another set of zeros on the scoreboard of life. So love, you see, is this mysterious yet beautiful combination of our outward actions and what's in our heart. Jesus taught about this and what has become known as the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about the difference between what you see on the outside of a person and what is truly going on inside. And he began to go through this list of how important it is to do both. And he gives us some examples. He says, you should know you shouldn't murder. Duh. That's the outside action, though. But if you're harboring and building anger, that's behind the word anger there. It's bigger than just, I'm angry at something. It's like I'm festering, I'm fostering, and I'm, I'm putting energy into being angry. If you, if you harbor and build anger towards someone, that's equally wrong and probably where it all began. In fact, our actions almost always reveal something very important about us 
and our heart from the inside out. In other words, in relationships, the heart is as important as the action. That's what Jesus teaches us, and it makes love a whole new ball game for us, takes it to a whole new level. It's not just what you see on the outside. It's what's happening on the inside that's important as well. See, the encouragement really is to do something about your heart. Learn to love. The writers of Scripture say, if you look at how Jesus lived and loved, you'll know who God is, and you will get some indication of how we're designed to live and love as well. And now, with the time that remains, I want to do exactly that and take you through one chapter of the Bible right out of the life of Jesus that illustrates these two elements at work. At the end of the account, it says that people, at the end of the account of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that people were absolutely astonished at Jesus' teaching, his speaking ability, his insights, at the sheer brilliance and power that he spoke in on the mountainside that day. It was truly a moment in history. But right after that shining moment in the preaching ministry of Jesus, Jesus seems to me to make some deliberate choices. To lead a kind of life after that shining moment that is different from the life most people would have chosen to lead. I think you're going to find this quite interesting and in fact intersecting with your own life right now as some of the restrictions we've been under start to be lifted a bit. Luke 7.1 says that right after the Sermon on the Mount, That huge, successful, multiple-impacting kind of talk, without question in my mind, the greatest sermon ever given. After this great moment of triumph, Jesus goes home. He went to the little town of Capernaum, where most scholars believe he was residing at the time. He doesn't go to Hollywood. He doesn't get an agent. He doesn't go to a press conference. He doesn't even go to Jerusalem right away. He just goes home. He doesn't take this big show now on the road and build on it. He just resumes the little show. He just goes from little town to little town, bumps into, ministers to people, helps them along the way. The Bible records that as Jesus resumed his ministry, he bumps into three people. Let me just briefly describe these little interactions. The first person is a Roman centurion who has a sick servant. Now, I spoke about him at length back in March from the perspective of the, of the centurion's faith. But today we're looking at this from Jesus' viewpoint. It's not about Jesus' faith. It's about Jesus' love. You re- may remember that Roman soldiers were occupying forces in Judea at the time. They were not well-loved people, as you might imagine. It's not even that a Roman soldier wants something from Jesus personally here. He wants his servant to be healed. A lowly servant. A servant who is likely the one who cleans out the droppings from the horse. A muck-out boy, if you will. Someone who even many Jews would, sh- would shy away from and call unclean. Isn't unclean such an interesting concept right now when we're in this whole uh, COVID thing? Unclean, stay away from me. But no, the centurion brings... Th- him, his, his predicament, his, his illness to Jesus. And you might think that this would be something that would bother someone who just had this amazing opportunity. If you had just done great things, if you had just astonished multitudes of people, would you want to mess with a muck-out boy? 
Wouldn't you be tempted to have you know, your people call my people? Let's figure this out. What do you do these days? What do you do these days when you're busy? When you're just busy and a friend of a friend wants you to go out of your way for them. Cousin Ben's kid needs a job. Your brother-in-law can't make his car payment. Your neighbor needs help with a load of dirt in his backyard. And you've just come off something big. Do you want to mess with that? What do you think Jesus did? Going on in Luke 7, Jesus bumps into another person. It's interesting how it happened. He goes to a little town called Nain, but he's interrupted in that by a funeral procession. What do you do when you're going somewhere? Especially if you kind of feel like you're an important person and there's lots of people uh, depending on you, waiting for you. What do you do if you're going somewhere and you get delayed? There's a wrench thrown into your plans. What do you do? Well, some of you know that uh, when we first came to Manitoba, Jennifer and I farmed for, for 17 years. And at the same time, I also drove a school bus. Because I was always fighting the conflict between the working on the farm and being on time for the school, uh, pick up kids from the school, I had it timed down virtually to the second how long it took me to get from the farm all the way down to Lockport where I picked up the transfers. I'm cruising down the highway this one day and I'm stopped at an intersection because there's a funeral procession crossing the road. I distinctly remember looking around the corner, hoping the dead guy didn't have a lot of friends because this was going to hold me up. Ooh, I probably just cut my own funeral procession in half. Am I saying that? Uh, two cars to one, and I'm in it. Oh, well. Well, Jesus is going somewhere, and now this funeral procession stops him. He sees a widow walking behind the casket. There are lots of friends, and they're all walking real slow with their headlights on, and he can't crash through. What do you do? What do you do when something as precious as your time is threatened or jeopardized? What do you do when someone makes you wait? When someone is late for an appointment? When traffic after the rush hour is supposed to be over is slower than it should be? What do you do? What happens in your heart and comes out in your actions? The third little interaction that happens in Luke 7 could only be described as the most embarrassing social event of the month. One of the religious leaders, who really wants to trap Jesus by asking him some tricky questions, invites Jesus to his house. Really, he just wants to get into a theological sparring match with him to try and discredit him in some way. The invitation goes out, however. Jesus accepts. The dinner begins. People are peeking in from outside, wondering what's going to happen when in walks the neighborhood woman of ill repute and takes her place at Jesus' feet and bursts out crying. This has the potential to be extremely embarrassing to Jesus. What if people think that she's someone he knows and she's not going away? She's hanging around by his feet and she's reaching for a perfume bottle for who knows what reason. This is not a brief moment of discomfort that some of us face when we come across a panhandler somewhere. She's got hold of his feet and she's now pouring the perfume all over them and wiping it with her hair. She's not going anywhere soon and everybody, everybody is looking. What do you think Jesus does? What do you do when awkward, needy people break into your carefully presented life? 
What do you do when you're caught off guard and you can't just turn away or quicken your pace or try not to see them? What do you do when you're confronted with people with real need? Three little interchanges that happened after this astonishing talk on the side of the mountain that Jesus gave near the Sea of Galilee. Well, several lessons on love jump out at me, and they're kind of in a progressive nature, interestingly enough. The first is simply the example of Jesus that after this huge public adrenaline-filled moment, he still has all kinds of compassion for a soldier with a sick muck-out boy. And he heals him. He has all kinds of compassion and time for the widow whose funeral was messing with his schedule and making him late. He resurrected the widow's son and gave him back to her. And he has all kinds of compassion and time and a full heart of forgiveness for the repentant call girl. I think about this and all I can say is, that's a love beyond me that I want to learn to be. Read Luke 7 when you get home and read it slowly. We're just touching the service here. What you will come to understand is that my love and your love, it's so different from God's love. Human love is so frightfully limited. Ask me to love my family and my friends, at least my close friends. I'd like to think that I could hold my own. Ask me to love some people outside the circle from nowhere some qualifiers suddenly start to come up into my mind and I say, all right now, if you're asking me to love some people outside of this circle, they better be nice. They better not hurt me. They better be safe. They better be stable. They better be deserving. Add your qualifiers. Nice. They better be pro-life. They better be conservative. They better be young. They better be old. They better be single. They better be rich. They better be heterosexual. Where do those qualifiers come from? What are those filters all about? Friends, when people don't meet certain requirements of mine or yours, our human love dries up in a big hurry. It does, doesn't it? Human love is so limited. God's love, on the other hand, is not like that. As demonstrated by his son, Jesus, when he doesn't even flinch, when he's asked to heal this muck-out boy of an occupying soldier. It's no problem for Jesus. He does it with joy. Friend, that's a love beyond me that I want to learn to be. You see it through all the pages of Scripture where Jesus sincerely and eagerly and almost recklessly loves people outside the circle. He just shows a kind of abandoned love towards the poor and the maimed and the outcast and the forgotten and the riffraff and the rich and the poor and the different races and the different socioeconomic standings. You see, there's no limits on his love. Every time I ponder it afresh, I am moved by it because it's a love beyond me. I am drawn to it. I am melted by it. I want to tear my heart open to receive more and more of it. And then I want to emulate it. I find that I want my capacity to love in that way to increase. I want to be able to give away a love that is broader and wider and less filtered and qualified. I want to be able to express love across ethnic and cultural divides and political lines and gender lines. I think deep down, you long for the very same thing. Perhaps you're even starving for it right now. The good news is that it's available. And once it invades a human heart, it changes the human heart. 
It becomes that which can be conveyed in the example that Jesus gives us. Let's get back to the story in Luke 7. What did Jesus do when his journey was delayed because of that funeral? I got to tell you something. This insight cuts deeply into those of us who need to be somewhere at a certain time. My reflex heart reaction to a delay or a wrench in my plans is frustration. It is, if it's dramatic enough, I say, huh, of all the days. Did you ever do such a thing as this? Of all the days for this to happen or for that to happen. Of all the days for a train to be crossing and I can't even see the end of it. And ah, it's slowing down. You start pounding the steering wheel and your heart gets cold and small. Or at least I've been told. I mean, that would never happen. I only have to cross three main lines to get to the church from my home. It's me. My wife, Jennifer, and I have attended a large church conference in Chicago many times. It's intended for pastors and church staff. There is a seating in the main auditorium for 7,000 people. And it's always completely sold out. The problem is, it's rush seating. And there are a few hundred of really great seats, of course, right down in front of the podium. They keep the doors to the sanctuary locked until just before the session begins, and then in one flourish, open all the doors at the same time. And suddenly there is not much love in the foyer or the aisles. There is no, please, go ahead before me, or go ahead, you go first, please, I insist. Oh no, it's a stampede, elbows flying. That's the way human love works when we get thrown off kilter. Love shuts down. Enter a love beyond me. Enter a love beyond me. Here is Jesus. He's delayed. Absolutely. Angry? No. He sees a widow walking behind the casket of her only son, and he feels deep compassion for her. When the doors to the sanctuary opened in Chicago, I didn't want to see the people around me. I didn't want to really see them. Maybe because I was crawling over seatbacks at such a high rate of speed. But I didn't really see anybody, and I didn't feel deep compassion for anybody but me. That's love of a human kind. We're led to believe that Jesus had never met this widow before. The procession was messing with his plans, making him late, but his heart of love didn't get cold and small. It didn't shut down. Rather, it stayed open and it was ready to love. And his heart found a way to do that, that he could relieve the suffering of this widow. He raised her son from the dead and carefully and gently gave him back to his mother. While I respect, I can't even begin to describe you and how awesome that is and the awe that I feel about that divine power revealed in the resurrection. I actually fall to my knees at the love that motivated the miracle in the first place. Because it's so unlike our love. It's a love beyond me. It's a love beyond us. It's a love that embraces the unexpected and stays open despite interruptions. It's a love that seeks to see what God sees, what God would have in mind when our carefully laid plans go astray. When I think about it, I breathe a little easier knowing that when I interrupt God's plan for the day with my pleas for help, 
I don't know how often you do it in the middle of your day, but many times in a day I say, God, I know there's wars and riots going on, and I know you're doing a whole bunch of stuff, but help! I need help. I need wisdom. I need strength. I need patience. I need character. I need courage. You know what we learn from this little text? Those interruptions don't cause Jesus to be frustrated and angry. His heart stays wide open. He says, bring them on. My heart can handle all of them. What about the crying call girl? Jesus doesn't push her away to protect his own reputation. Jesus doesn't morally whack her for the wicked choices of her past. He doesn't even give her a sermon on how to turn over a new moral leaf. He just looks into her eyes. And then he counts her tears. And he discerns that her repentance is real. And he quietly says to her, It's over. You're forgiven. Your past has been wiped clean. See, that's a love that's beyond me. And I want to learn to be. Imagine how that weeping call girl felt. Some of us can imagine because... Some of us remember the day we came to Christ in the middle of our shame. And some of us cried like she cried and said, I don't think there's a way that I could ever be forgiven for what I've done. Now, I just passed my eight-month anniversary here being on staff, but I already know this happens to be a church that has a lot of spectacular sinners. Lots of you can remember clearly, can't you? Hearing the words of Christ in your heart, when he said, I see your tears. I know your repentance is real. It's over. You're mine now. I give you salvation as a gift. Your past, it's wiped clean. Friends, when I heard those words 45 years ago, yeah, I know I was only nine months old. I was not just overwhelmed by love beyond me. I was transformed by it. I'm hoping that many of you who are not transformed by love beyond you yet, will be today or through this series. Open your heart to it. As I pondered this series we've been in, I thought, you know, I want to be able to love others a little more openly uh, and more freely and more quickly. I would like my name, frankly, to be associated as one who has love as the highest goal. That's going to take receiving and giving of a love beyond me but that I dearly want to be. How about you? Here's another thing that jumped out at me. I refer back to Jesus' astonishing public moment where he had this huge experience of hearing the applause, I'm sure, of a huge crowd and being highly esteemed because of that. I ask you against that backdrop to consider that, it, that isn't it true that whenever you or I discover a competency, a core competency, isn't it just natural and almost overwhelmingly tempting to kind of orient it all of our energy, all of our lives around that, you know, strategically plan to use that to its maximum? Can we repeat what's been going on and can we just keep being highly esteemed? We like to feel important. That's why business people tend to go from deal to deal to deal and why lawyers go from trial to trial to trial and why musicians go from performance to performance and athletes from game to game and salespeople from quota to quota and pastors, yeah, from sermon to sermon. It isn't easy to, it, it, it is easy to fall into a pattern of trying to hit the ball of achievement a little harder. It just is. We often have sayings like, whoa, good message, hit the ball out of the park. That was a home run. Well, you know what? Then what's the next one? What's the next one? Is it going to be a home run too? I've got to hit two home runs. I've got to hit three. 
fed 5,000? Let's make it 10 next time, 10,000. We gotta keep building. It's easy to fall into a pattern of trying to hit the ball of achievement just a little bit harder. Set another record. Push the performance envelope to further and further success until we frankly become robots with little or no capacity to give or receive love to the people in and around our lives. Isn't it true that far too many of us are far too willing to trade the warm glow of loving relationships for the hot glare of professional success or personal achievement? What struck me is that Jesus, after this huge public moment, seems to be more dedicated to getting back to the daily rhythms of living and loving people around him than to arranging his next big event. You see, for Jesus, these everyday interchanges with soldiers, with servant boys, with widows, with call girls, for him, those were the big deal. And they should be for us too. They are irretrievable opportunities to give and receive what Jesus called is the most supreme thing in all the world. Love. This moves us to identifying the distinguishing characteristics of love of another kind. What makes God's love different than a standard generic brand X kind of love that flows, that flows out of us? Well, it's this. From Jesus, it flows to people who don't deserve it. It flows to people who may never give him anything back. Here's the heart of it. Love beyond you is the power that moves you to give to another person with no expectation of reward. It's love beyond us that is freely given to us already. Bold love, comforting love, persevering love. That love is the power that moves you to give to another person even when you don't expect anything back. It's lo it's, it loves, not because loving is a good way to get your needs met. This kind of love is not calculating or shrewd. In fact, this kind of love has cost God an enormous amount of pain. The truth about God is, God loves being loving because loving is the only worthwhile way of being. It's his nature to love. So where there are people, there is God's love. Anytime you look on this planet and see a human being, you see an object of the love of God, no matter how undeserving. You, frankly, have yet to lay eyes on someone for whom Jesus did not die. Wherever you are, friends, there is the love of God, and there are your neighbors. Therefore, because it doesn't depend for its existence on getting a return for its investment, this kind of love never fails. That's the whole series. This love comforts the face of pain. It's bold in the face of risk. It persists in the face of breakdowns. Love, you see, from God never fails. But it does get tested. A pastor friend of mine, I've had the privilege of meeting at several different occasions, uh, who's been leading seminars, and you'd know the name if I said it, but I'm not into name dropping today, at least. When he was traveling across country on a plane with his two kids in tow, he told me that they basically took over the back of the plane in flight, and he knew they were in trouble when the airline steward came up to him and asked, would it be okay if your children played outside? Not a good sign, right? 
He related how they were just exhausted trying to keep up with all this stuff, wondering why they brought the kids with them on this trip. Why did we bring them? We should have left them home. This guy was sitting a little bit in front of them, and he turns around, surveys the field of damage behind him on the plane, looks over at the pastor and says, are those your two kids? He replies and says, yeah. And the man says, ah, my wife and I would give anything in the world to have two kids. My pastor friend is just moved in that moment with compassion that he's so worked up about trying to control his two precious children. And he responds, oh, you don't have any kids? And the man says, no, we have five kids. We'd give anything in the world just to have two. See, the brutal truth about love is that generally, love just boils down to work. Will I make the bed before I leave for the office? Will I do the dishes without thinking that it makes me some kind of hero? Will I devote a Saturday to helping our care team minister to someone in need? Love beyond me involves the choice to give love to another human being with no expectation of ever being repaid. These are the moments that determine whether or not you and I will go on this most excellent adventure. And you can do it, and God will help you. God already has been helping you, maybe in sneaky ways that you didn't even recognize. If you've ever in your life had a fleeting impulse to forget your self-interest and act solely for the benefit of another person without thought of reward or return, the truth is you've been nudged by God's love. If you've ever been moved to sacrifice on behalf of someone, even though no one will ever know, not even that person, it was God moving you with his love. If you've ever had a rival in work or school or in romance and know that if you helped him or her, your chance to win would be damaged and you helped them anyway, you've been touched by God's love. If you've ever changed a baby's diaper, that always is the expression of love when you change a baby's diaper. I mean, who else? Why else would you subject yourself to that? If you've ever cared for a two-year-old and patiently cleaned up the small spills and the wiped nose and swept up countless broken objects that were touched in defiance of the rules and endured a thousand willful minds and no, and you read Winnie the Pooh so many times that Winnie and Piglet occur regularly in your dreams, you've known the hand, the love of God. You see, when people are moved to love with no thought of reward, then God has been up to something. Now you must decide. You must decide in this moment if you will invest yourself in receiving this kind of love from God and then give it to other people. You see, love, God's love, love beyond us is really a kind of power. That's why the Bible talks about it as if it were a person. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You see, love never fails. The point is not that love does these things. It's that love, when it flows from God into human beings, is the power that enables people to do it and to keep at it. That's love beyond us, in us. When Jesus talked about love, he didn't say, I want you to really love each other. Give it your best shot. He didn't say, I think I need to rephrase that. 
I want you to really, really love each other. Hit a home run in love. Try your best. He didn't even say, I want you to love like Mother Teresa loved. He said, I want you to love others as I have loved you. Do you hear a little bit of a challenge in that? I do. The challenge is to follow Jesus' example and love as he loved. To, in a sense, compare how we love others to the way that he loved us and see how we're doing against his example. He gives us a living example of doing that. It's the 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. But if you listen really closely, there's more than just a challenge and an example there in the simple two-letter word, as. There's an offer there as well. There's an offer of incredible power to love in our lives. Love one another as I have loved you. Now you could be sitting there in your pajamas right now thinking, oh, Chris, Chris never told you we can actually see back into your homes? Sorry, but no, we can't actually. Don't worry. You could be sitting there thinking, that'd be wonderful, but there's no way that's going to happen, Lauren. Love one another as I have loved you. That's a way too big a leap from where I'm at. Not just love the best, not just love the best that I can do and try, but love like Jesus did. I can't do it. Well, that's perfect, actually. You're exactly where Jesus wants you. It's where he wants me. It's where he wants all of us saying, I can't do it. Because then we recognize that the power to actually pull this off, the power to love in a kind of way that isn't found in ourselves, it's found in him. That's where the love beyond us comes from. Jesus gives us this incredible challenge, not to discourage us, but to lead us to find the power to love, not in ourselves, but in him. You can love pretty well in and of yourselves if the world's standards is all that you're going to use. But Jesus doesn't compare and say, compare yourself to the world's love. Compare yourselves to him so we can be challenged to a kind of love that the world has never seen before, never experienced before. A love beyond us, God's love. Love one another as I have loved you. Jesus not only taught this principle, he lived it. Now you've got to decide. This is the moment. You've got to decide whether you want to live that kind of love too. To devote your life to learning and giving this kind of love. You must decide this. Here's the good news. You can become a deeply loving person. You really can. Your name can become synonymous with love. To help you along with that, I've got a couple of homework exercises for you. Because we all need a little more exercise right now, right? Well, I know that's not the same. Humor me. They're going to come up on your screen and just, so get ready to jot them down. We're just going to put them up for a moment. The second one, the second exercise, is an exercise I have done so often, it's become a kind of bedtime habit for me. And it's helped me to learn to love. I'd encourage you to get it. It's on your screen now, so just give you a quick moment to write it down. And I want to close with a short story and prayer.
Okay. Again, you can always go back and find that again, but I'd really encourage you to try those exercises. It's made a huge difference in my life. Now I want to give you just a short little story here. It's about a surgeon by the name of Richard Zeltzer. One day, Richard Seltzer writes of standing in a hospital room beside the bed of a young lady on whom he had just operated. In removing a cancerous tumor from her cheek, he'd had to sever a small nerve that left her mouth slightly deformed. <clears throat> Beside her, her young husband was standing, carefully caressing her hand. She looked up at Dr. Zeltzer and she said, Will my mouth always be like this? He writes back, I replied, yes. It's because to get the tumor, all of the tumor, I had to cut the nerve. She nodded and then fell silent, but the young man smiled. I like it, he said. I think it's kind of cute. All at once, Zelta writes, I know who he is, and I lower my gaze in the presence of greatness. One is not bold in an encounter with love like this. It's a love beyond us. Unmindful, the young husband bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I'm close enough to see how he twists his mouth, how he twists his lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. See, that act didn't come from a counselor. He didn't learn it in a book somewhere. That's love beyond us. That's the love of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is the big leagues that we're talking about here now. This is no fleeting, fickle, fuzzy feeling we're talking about. We're learning to love as you do, and that takes us pretty quickly, if we're honest, through the end of ourselves and beyond. And because we simply can't manufacture that kind of love on our own. And yet, you, you know we try. How silly that we do this, Lord. How we keep trying to love from our own self, from our own power, when you offer unconditional love to us, when you offer your promises and they are yes and amen to us, and they're there for us to hold on to moment by moment and day by day, and they are always right and true. We pray, Father, that we could be filled to overflowing with your love, first of all to you and then to others. But that's often where it hits the road for us, Father. It's in the other's part. Because frankly, you are easy to love. You've forgiven us. You are a strong tower. You are a refuge, you are a protector, our healer, our guide. You are savior. But it kind of comes a little short when we think about our neighbor. They're imperfect. They sometimes are hard to love, honestly. But then wait a minute. Maybe we are too. And yet you choose to love us and tell us to love like that. So that would be our heart and our prayer before you today. Hear our cry this morning, Lord. Help us to drop, even frankly bury, all the excuses, all the conditions and help us to learn to love. It truly 
is the most excellent way to live. And we thank you for that love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com. 